Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God that engages us this morning is from the lesson just read, specifically Isaiah 44, verse 5. This one will write upon his hand, La Yahweh, belonging to Yahweh. Rob Polis is a walking piece of literature. He has tattooed on his left wrist, quote, B-A-C-K, period, close quote. It looks as though it's lifted from the end of a sentence. It is. <laughs> Polis is part of this worldwide movement initiated by author Shelley Jackson to place her story on human bodies, appropriately called skin. The book has 2,085 words. Each person bears on their body one word. It's not as though everything I do has to be tricked out by games and gimmicks, said Shelley Jackson recently in an interview. I just wanted to explore the full range of what a text can do. Polis heard about this in his literature class at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He said, I always wanted to get a tattoo, but I knew that when I did, it had to be something important. <laughs> Shelley Jackson, at last count, is looking for 400 more people to bear her final 400 words. Now just think, you and I, right after chapel, we could contact Shelley Jackson, offer our human hides, and be part of an alternative narrative. How many of you want to line up and get a one-word tattoo right after chapel? <laughs> That's just what I thought. That's just what I thought, and truth be told, and much to my three children's dismay, I'm not all that eager to get a tattoo either. <laughs> Isaiah also envisions people with a one-word tattoo. He says in our text, this one will write upon his hand, Le Yahweh. Belonging to Yahweh. But you see, Judean exiles in Babylon weren't all that eager to line up to get a one-word tattoo. They really didn't want to be marked by their maker. You see, there was another text in town. The dominant ancient Near Eastern narrative of the 6th century B.C. was the classic Babylonian epic, the Enuma Elise. And in the Enuma Elise, the great god Marduk defeated the lesser god Tiamat and took her remains and created the universe. The Enuma Elise was read every year at the Ikitu Festival. And the pinnacle came in the acclamation in Akkadian, Marduka Masuru, which when interpreted means 
Marduk is king. Coupled with the empire's pomp and circumstance in the Akitu festival was their strategy of changing people's names. Just ask Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah. Or maybe you remember them by their veggie tail name, Shakrach and Benny. Some affectionately call them your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. But in Daniel 1.7, they are called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The strategy? Change the Judean names to change their identity to have a Babylonian identity and entice them into worshiping the great god Marduk. And so very few Judeans wanted to line up and be tattooed, Yahweh. Babylon, oh, Babylon appeared to offer so much more. <laughs> yes, Marduk was, and I'm not making this up, the god of thunder and storm. <laughs> The dominant narrative <laughs> of our day is not the Enuma least, but it is peddled by the young and the beautiful who guarantee, or our money back, we can be young and beautiful just like them. If we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to be surrounded by stuff we won't even like. This dominant text is hammered into our heads at an alarming rate. On any given day in America, you and I wake up and open the morning newspaper, or more likely log on to Yahoo News. And by the time we fall asleep to another rerun of I Love Lucy, we will encounter over 2,000 images that have this one dominant theme. You can buy happiness. Put together with the pomp and circumstance of American consumerism is the enemy's strategy to change your name. The goal? Re-identify you, redefine you, so you and I find our ultimate fulfillment in things. Beamed, beloved, the enemy calls us cheap and dirty and worthless. Deemed, washed, and cleansed in the name of Jesus, Satan whispers, (laughs) oh no, you are guilty as charged. Called a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. The liar brazenly boasts it's all fantasy, a fiction, a figment of your imagination. When this dominant devil is connected with the dominant American narrative, it creates in us a slowness 
sometimes a stubbornness to be marked by the word Le Yahweh. Besides, we say, <laughs> outside of this campus, who actually wants to be tattooed as a believer and stick out like a sore thumb? And furthermore, we continue trying to convince ourselves, I can buy in and sell my soul to the American dream and claim all the promises of prosperity and still bear the name of Jesus. Oh God, we need another narrative. We need a counter narrative. <laughs> Enter Isaiah 40 to 55, <laughs> where the prophet takes dead aim on the empire. Isaiah says in 40 verse 12 that Babylon and all the nations of the world are just a drop in the bucket. In 40:23, Isaiah maintains that Babylon's leaders and her great god Marduk are only dust in the wind. And then the clincher, Isaiah takes off the gloves. Chapter 47, which says in part, sit in silence. Go into darkness, daughter Babylon. You will no longer be called the queen of the kingdoms. And this countercultural narrative in Isaiah 40 to 55 is just getting revved up. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, Yahweh is doing a renewed event. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. <laughs> and taking one more shot at every seductive and satanic meta-narrative, Isaiah maintains that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All to the end that you and I will willingly and joyfully be branded by one word, not Labavel. You don't belong to Babylon. But Yahweh, belonging to Yahweh. See, our God has always told his story on people's bodies. Let's call it skin. In Genesis 4, he marks Cain. In Genesis 17, he gives Abraham and his offspring the covenant mark of circumcision. Deuteronomy 6 pictures God's people as tying his words on their hands and binding them on their foreheads. And then in Ezekiel 9, God commands a man with a writing kit 
to go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the forehead of everyone who grieves and laments and wails over all the detestable things done in this city. And at all points to the most awesome story ever told on human skin. Isaiah describes this body too. His appearance was disfigured beyond that of any man. His form marred beyond human likeness like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And Yahweh laid upon him the iniquity of us all. One spear, three nails, a crown of thorns, left their marks on the body of Jesus, did they ever? But first the 10. And then climactically Thomas saw our Savior alive and he showed them the scars. Jesus is forever alive, marked with scars, announcing for you right here, right now, his loyal love, his free forgiveness, and his grace gone wild. So people began lining up. Paul, Galatians six seventeen, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Eyes marked with humility and compassion, a mind marked with toughness and truth, and a mouth marked with Jesus and joy. All to the end, that you and I get tattooed (laughs) with one word in a counter-cultural text. Yahweh. But just how does that happen? <laughs> Remember the water. Recall the word and forever cherish this liturgical rite. Receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you. Mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.